Welcome to the Josiah's podcast. My name is Pater Edmund Waldstein, and I'm in Heiligenkreuz in Austria. I'm Father John Tveit. I'm in the Hudson Valley in New York. I'm Matthew Walther, editor of The Lamp magazine and a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. I'm in rural southwest Michigan. And I am Urban Hannon, coming to you from Rome, Italy. Potter, thanks so much for having us. Uh, since I am definitely the most musically illiterate of us four, I thought I would ask, what uh, what were we listening to? What played us in just now? We were listening to a recording, actually, from a Christmas Midnight Mass in Regensburg in the 1980s. And it was the Regensburger Domspatzen, the uh, Cathedral Sparrows of Regensburg, singing the Benedictus from Mozart's Coronation Mass. Uh, and the conductor was Georg Ratzinger, the brother of Pope Benedict XVI. Um, and I thought we would listen to this because we're talking about Pope Benedict in this episode, and he was a great lover of Mozart, as was his brother. Um, and in fact, he's sometimes called the, the Mozart of theology, which I thought is an excellent epithet for him. Do we know where that comes from originally? Uh, it's either from Cardinal Miller or from Cardinal Meissner, one of the two. I'm not sure who was the one who said it first. Yeah, I found this beautiful beautiful quote from Cardinal Meisner. I think it was when Pope Benedict turned 80. Cardinal Meisner said that uh, he manages masterfully to transform the notes of the gospel into thrilling music. Yeah, he was uh, he was a theologian of a generation where in at least in German theology, in, in some ways Ratzinger was more like a French theologian than a German theologian stylistically, but in German theology, you had these very ponderous uh, writers like Karl Rahner, for example, whose prose is uh, kind of a slog. <laughs> but uh, Ratzinger had the kind of lightness of touch to his theology, a lightness of touch to his prose, which uh, I think reflected a kind of simplicity to his theological vision. There's a sense, too, of a, a kind of um, wistfulness and romanticism that's conveyed very wonderfully in his memoirs and that you also see in the author, authorized biography. Um, I very much like the idea of the young Bavarian policeman's son reading Schiller. Um, and that character is there in his writings. Um, and I agree as, as someone who mostly finds 20th century theology unreadable, both for stylistic reasons and sort of conceptual ones, uh, that he is always a pleasure to read. One of the things that's interesting about him just situated in his generation, and I actually wrote about this a little bit this afternoon, Matthew, for The Lamp, a uh, little colloquium on Pope Benedict, but I was thinking about the way in which among his contemporaries, he's sometimes the least distinctive, and he's also the one who doesn't really have a school. There are people who describe themselves today as Ratzingerians, uh, and some of them are excellent, excellent scholars, um, but whether they actually study Pope Benedict or study other things and just mean to do that 
in a kind of Ratzingerian style, when they call themselves Ratzingerians, there's something more almost aesthetic about that and a kind of signaling that they belong to um, a particular strand within the church today, as opposed to advancing a kind of theological school, um, and certainly not a literal school, the way that Balthazarians have actual institutions, Ranarians have had actual institutions. There aren't really institutions for Pope Benedict's theology in the same way. And yet, of all of those men, I think already today, but certainly my prediction is that in the decades and certainly centuries to come, if anyone from that so-called great generation ends up actually having staying power and being able to speak to people beyond their generation, I really think it will be Pope Benedict. Yeah, I very much agree. The To go back to the comparison with Mozart, um, Mozart's music has a kind of effortlessness to it. Um, the way he... Uh, his genius for melody and the way he sort of, he throws away in, in a sort of a, a little extra, a melody that someone else would, you know, build the whole piece on. Uh, and there's a similar effortlessness, I think, to, to Ratzinger's theology. Um, partly because I don't think he was, he was, he wasn't trying to start a school. He wasn't trying to, uh, to come up with a system the way great German intellectuals often uh, do try to do. But he, you can tell his, his theology is very, uh, arises very immediately from his, um, his own reading of sacred scripture and uh, his life of prayer, um, especially nourished by the sacred liturgy as sort of the, the original locus of the reading and interpretation of sacred scripture. Yeah, I've been struck by that uh, since he died. I've I've sort of returned to some of his uh, his homilies, which are so beautiful and so inspiring, in just how he approaches sacred scripture. And uh, I know for a long time I, I I couldn't read him. I got sort of too nostalgic, but now I have to. I've been going back to him a little bit this week, and just how hopeful hopeful the tone is, you know, because his faith is so strong in a sense and so well-rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and a very intimate relationship with Jesus Christ that it comes across very hopefully and it inspires such great hope. And hearing, reading some of his theology, reading uh, reading his homilies especially, I feel like I'm reading one of the fathers. It has a, a similar sort of tone and approach to scripture. Yeah, in terms of all of those who were trying to do some sort of race or small and go back to the sources in some way, he is, if not unique, at least exceptional in being able to really enter into that tradition and kind of speak from within it. He returns to the fathers, not just on a kind of archaeological mission to serve his own ideological ends today, but because they're great readers of scripture, they're great readers of the revelation of God to us, and they show us God. And that's all he seems to ever want to do is to show us God and draw us back into um, yeah, this very theocentric theology that 
is not, I mean, he's certainly a man of his age and we can talk about the ways in which that comes through for better and worse, but he's not seeking to put some kind of imprint on the age. He's seeking to be a Catholic. Yeah. It seems to me that with some of the theologians of his generation, the return to the fathers has um, almost principally a kind of uh, critical function. That is, it's, it's for the sake of sweeping away the edifice of scholastic theology that they're dissatisfied with. They want to start over, you know, from square one, as it were. And so they say, well, it's returned to the fathers in the sense of brushing away the sort of achievements of scientific theology that were built up in the Middle Ages and so on. Um, whereas with him, and but and then they end up, those theologians often end up then building up a, a, a system that's much more sort of so self-enclosed and technical than the scholastic, than the great scholastic theologians <laughs> uh, theology was. <laughs> Whereas with Ratzinger, it seems like um, although there is, there's a bit of that critical element insofar as I think he thought that some of the school theology, as it were, um, was too, was too conceptual in a way that it was, it was too much talking about words and not much, not enough about reality. And he wanted in a way, the theology to be more uh, in contact with the reality of God. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that that was his main aim was sort of sweeping away the old so that something new could come. But really what he was really interested in was God. Yeah. I mean, even I, his turn to St. Bonaventure speaks to that, right? That he's not saying that the church fell into a bad way, that we've obscured things completely, etc. His uh, complaints and as much as he had complaints against the kind of Roman school theology of the mid 20th century there were not against scholasticism as such, um, but were against something that he perceived to be um, kind of stilted and out of contact. Um, and so there's at least something more serene about his approach to that and where he's willing to turn to try to broaden our um, sort of horizons and be able to breathe life back into what we're doing in theology. In, in some ways, I think a very instructive comparison here is um, John Henry Newman, who similarly um, is doing something that is very different from scholastic theology. But I think in Newman's case, it's even clearer that there's not a polemical intention. It's not an attempt to discard anything. Um, he's just speaking to a sense that the immutable truths of the faith, um, you know, can be translated into, um, the language of his time. But in doing so, you know, he ends up speaking to us for all ages. I mean, it would, I, I think it would be very hard to come up with, you know, a scholastic theologian who's a contemporary of Newman's who is widely read or whom anyone can even name, um, certainly in the, in the Anglosphere. Um, but I think, um, I think really, uh, Newman is also a good, um, 
point of comparison because uh, in some ways the themes that lurk beneath the surface um, in both men are similar. Um, love, uh, friendship, um, this simultaneous sense of um, openness towards the world and uh, skepticism of worldly things. Um, and that, that's why, you know, for me, uh, not, not so much uh, for a Protestant friend, uh, you know, I'm hoping, you know, to see come over, but to non-believers, I always um, try to turn their attention to um, this wonderful, we were talking about Ratzinger's homilies, there's this very small book. It's just a collection of four talks he gave in the mid eighties, I think on Genesis, um, published under the title in the beginning. And he, in the first one, especially is my favorite because he kind of takes us his starting point. The idea that you're sort of average educated, um, person today has heard of, you know, comparative mythology and knows there were all these old uh, Near Eastern creation myths, you know, the Bible is just one of those. And he reminds us that, of course, you know, in some ways there are, there are similarities, but there's also a, an enormous difference between a universe where, you know, creation comes into being uh, because um, a dragon rips itself to pieces or whatever, and we're formed from its blood. And only the... Um, sort of authoritarian um, representative of the chaos god can, you know, tame the dragon draconian urges, you know, that are the essential component of our being. Compare that to sort of omnibenevolent god who for almost superfluous reasons out of sort of sheer abundance of, you know, benevolence creates... Uh, everything and recognize it as good. And I think, I think that intuition is one that um, people don't have today. And I think it's a much more, um, it's a much more meaningful response to the sort of existentialist mid-century concerns that so many of his, um, so many of Ratzinger's um, contemporaries had this sense of post-war man and, the bomb and the shadow of uh, Auschwitz and all this, you know, instead of being sort of dour and gloomy, he reminds us that um, the omnibenevolent God made uh, everything and that it was good. Yeah, I, was yeah, I thought it was it's... very notable that in his his spiritual testament, uh, he talked about how um, the he talked about the supposed conflict between science and faith, basically, which um, was something that preoccupied him a lot because it's something that's so foundational to our culture, this idea that there's somehow science can in, in some way replace faith. And he talks there in the Testament about how neither natural science nor um, historical science, in fact, cashes out to something that is in conflict with faith. But what, to me, what was, was particularly illuminating about his approach to that uh, during his whole career as a theologian and then during his teaching as Pope 
was something he says in the encyclical Space Salvi, namely that the modern crisis of faith is uh, founded on a crisis of hope. That uh, what modern ideologies, uh, beginning with the sort of Baconian ideology of uh, domination of nature, what they do is sort of replace the hope in salvation in Jesus Christ with some innerworldly hope in progress. And there are all different ways in which this can cash out. Uh, there's the, the sort of liberal um, way, and then there's the Marxist way, uh, which takes that in a somewhat different direction and so on. But all what they all have in common is uh, this idea that um, what we really set our hope in is something that we something that we can bring about by science or by the scientific uh, um, scientific socialism, scientific class struggle, something like that. He also, in the spiritual testament, right, that came out right after Pope Benedict died, he talks about the sciences, both in terms of the natural sciences, but also in terms of the historical sciences, uh, scriptural exegesis, criticism, etc. He talks about all the different attempts that he's watched from the mid-century onward, basically, and how one generation after another has put forward some new master theory um, that's a replacement for the faith, but also that's supposed to be some kind of contradiction to the faith, criticism of the faith, something that makes the faith intellectually unserious or untenable or irresponsible. And he yeah, said... Or reinterprets the faith so that it's not really the faith anymore. Exactly. Right? He mentions Boltzmann there, for example, where the faith becomes kind of a parable for existentialism. Yep. Harnack as well with a liberal read of everything in scripture. Um and Marxism, similarly, uh, various liberation theologies, etc., which he was, of course, very involved in trying to uh, put in their place. But he says, I've watched all of these come and go, basically. And his exact wording there is, I have seen and see how out of the tangle of hypotheses, the reasonableness of faith has emerged and is emerging anew. Jesus Christ is truly the way, the truth and the life. And the church and all her shortcomings is truly his body. So there is something interesting and beautiful about him having ended his life with just this kind of serene confidence in the truth of all that is revealed and all that we receive from God and in the church. I was thinking too, Matthew, with what you were saying about comparisons to St. John Henry. One thing, I think this is in the Apologia, but you'd be able to correct me. Um, there's some time when St. John Henry is referred to as a theologian, and he corrects it and says, I don't think of myself as a theologian, I think of myself as a polemicist, or a controversialist, or something like this. And I was thinking that Pope Benedict, obviously, is a great theologian in many ways. But there's a way in which that also applies to him. He's not doing the sort of thing that we'd think about when we think of the science of theology in some way. He's not doing sacra doctrina in the way that's conceived of in the first uh, question of the Summa Theologiae, and not just because he's not a Thomist, but because he's not really interested in starting from what's known and using demonstration to get us from that to further truths and trying to 
kind of walk us through from beginning to end. He's much more in the mode of someone who enters into the particular point in the conversation we're at and tries to say, what can the faith speak to in this moment that would be helpful? Um, So I think that's true with the Jesus of Nazareth trilogy and looking at the state of scriptural scholarship and trying to say, not, you know, beginning from John's gospel, what are the first principles and what order should we put them in to try to know that the son came first from, it came forth from the father and so forth, but rather enters into the sort of mess of critical conversation we've got and says with the best of the resources available to us, why does some of this need to be called back into question, et cetera, and try to kind of win over his, his fellow countrymen there. Um, And I think his encyclicals work similarly, even if they're a bit more um, timeless in his reflections on the theological virtues or on Catholic social teaching, there's still something very quintessentially 20th century about them. And that's not a criticism. I think that's what he's after. Yeah, it's very much one of the big buzzwords after Vatican II was dialogue. And um, I think Benedict is the best example of a man of dialogue. I don't think dialogue is the only task of theology, but it is one task. And, you know, it, there's a difference between science and dialectic, as Aristotle says. And Pope Benedict is very much doing dialectic. He's like a Socrates, sort of the Catholic Socrates in the uh, the Athens of the modern world uh, trying to lead the Thrasymachuses of our time to some vision of the true. I thought yeah. it might be nice if each of us would say a little bit about um, our own, because uh, because Pope Benedict is like that, it would be nice if each of us could say a little bit about our own, by our own autobiography, as it were, how we first uh, came in contact with Josef Ratzinger or Pope Benedict and what the first things we read of his were, what our first impressions were. Maybe you can begin, Matthew, before we started, you were saying a little bit about uh, about oh, that. Oh, sure. So for me, um, it's interesting because a, a certain kind of um, nostalgia, I think, is one of the great um, animating themes Um in Ratzinger's writing, and again, something that comes through so uh, strongly in Milestones, especially in the wonderful description of the Holy Sepulchre constructed uh, as part of the, uh, the old uh, Good Friday celebrations. Um, and so for me, when I think of Pope Benedict, I always think of him, I always associate him with the immediate circumstances under which I returned to the faith. So I was um, confirmed in 2011. And this was the same era in which we got the revision of uh, the English translation of the Novus Ordo, getting rid of uh, for all and uh, some of the other howlers in there. And it was also the era of... Force um, be with you. Yeah. And... Uh, the, the Star Wars mess. Yeah. And also when um, Newman was beatified, 
and the creation of the ordinariate. And most important for me, it was also the era when the all the post-summerum pontificum communities were coming into their own. Um, at the time, my bishop in northern Michigan was Alexander Sample. And in those days, Bishop Sample used to celebrate the traditional mass every Sunday wow. you know, in his cathedral. And wow. so for me, it looks now like this all too brief sort of silver age in the life of the church where the Pope, I, my, my favorite thing about the creation of the ordinary was that bit where he's describing what he calls the Anglican patrimony. And he describes it in this sort of deliberately far-reaching way that gives us the impression that what the church is sort of claiming as the spoils of Egypt here is not just the, um, the Book of Common Prayer or the uh, English Bible of 1611, but in a sense also um, Dr. Johnson and Jane Austen, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, Coleridge and Sir Walter Scott, you know, the authors Newman credited for, for the Oxford remo- movement and ultimately for the sort of 19th century English Catholic revival. And so for me, as a young person whose mind was saturated with all that sort of thing as an undergraduate studying English, um, it, um, it created this sort of indelible impression when I look back on that on that time, um, returning to the faith and uh, going to mass with uh, Bishop Sample. It, uh, other than you know the baptism of my children or whatever, um, you know it, it, it's hard to think of any sort of more striking impressions of uh, of the faith for me. Wow! Yeah, Father Tveit. Yeah, similarly. I think my own relationship with Pope Benedict and his writings and much of what he did as Pope, very close to my own coming to the faith. I, I, was, I was raised in the faith and baptized as an infant, of course, but, uh, but going through kind of regular American uh, suburban CCD sort of program, I didn't really have much intellectual uh, knowledge of the faith or attachment to the faith. So just in, in high school, I was really sort of starting to see that the faith was something reasonable. And uh, so when he was elected Pope, was about midway through my, my time in high school, when I was already just starting to, to, to think about the faith and think that oh, there, there might be something here. So seeing him speak of the faith as something so reasonable was, was very important. And then the next step, of course, was was the traditional liturgy, which really brought me into the practice of the faith and, uh, you know, very quickly solidified my faith. And uh, it's in that sort of environment that I discerned a vocation and uh, entered the seminary. Uh, so his, his writings and his, his papacy had a very, very big effect on me, so much so that, I mean, I, I see a direct connection there and God was sort of using him in my own life. Um, and I, it's very interesting to think because there was there was something there was a little bit of a a, a flourishing a little bit of a, a what we call the Benedict bump in vocations. Uh, Benedict visited here in New York in two thousand eight again, right as I'm sort of growing in my faith, coming to to think about the possibility of a vocation. Uh, 
and that that very year that he came was really the year that I, I, I decided I, I should pursue the priesthood. But about seven, eight years later, there was a, a bump in vocations in our diocese that's very, very visible, um, which we call the, the, the Benedict bump. <laughs> more more vocations than yeah. in, in many years before or since. Uh, so I, I think we can, I certainly see it in my own, in my own life. That's great. How about you, Urban? The first time I can remember hearing Pope Benedict's name or Cardinal Ratzinger's name at the time, I was in high school and it was my first year of high school, my freshman year of high school, that St. John Paul II passed away and Pope Benedict was elected. And one of my theology teachers, who ended up being uh, one who really saved my faith at that time in my life, like Father Tveit, I was raised in a very kind of um, typical American um, Catholic experience, which parochially was very uninspiring and catechetically was basically non-existent. Um, and I had always been a very kind of intellectual or nerdy um, kid. And I had a lot of questions and had never really found anyone who was even asking the same questions, let alone attempting to answer them on behalf of the church for me. So some high school theology teachers really saved me in that regard. But the first who did was my freshman year scripture teacher. And I remember him telling me the story early my freshman year with John Paul II still reigning about a trip that he had made over to Rome with some students a year or two before. And it ended up that Cardinal Ratzinger received them at the Vatican and toured them around and spoke with them individually. And uh, he was just amazed that this man who for him had been a great hero, uh, and I was too young to to know much about him, but had been a great hero, was someone who he got to have this kind of personal contact with. And then it was at the end of that year, during the next conclave, I was sitting in his office one day, watching the next round of conclave voting and white smoke went up. And so to get to be with him, with this teacher, when Pope Benedict came out onto the balcony, was just a huge joy that I was experiencing completely um, kind of secondhand, but it was so infectious that even though I knew next to nothing about anything, um, it was really special for me to get to be excited about this and know, okay, this is good. The legacy of John Paul II um, in some way will be carried on in a mode that at least someone I trust who's been important to my faith is really confident in. And then as I got older and began reading much more of Pope Benedict, um, I think from a theological point of view, he was one of the first to really invite me into a deeper reflection on scripture, a deeper reflection on what friendship with our Lord looked like. And then when I got to the point of considering a vocation myself, he was someone whose vision of the priesthood was really, really powerful to me as well. And like both Matthew and Father Tveit, at a certain point in my life, discovering the gift of the traditional liturgy that I discovered as a result of his good work to try to, as he said, reconcile the church in her very heart, put the church today into continuity, harmony, communion with the church in her past. 
um, to kind of reconcile this at least perception of rupture that had entered into the church, he thought in large part um, by entering into her liturgy, to suddenly be put in contact with the entirety of Christian tradition in that setting of worship was so unbelievably powerful to me. Um, and I think completely transformed my approach to reality. I don't think that's overstating it to say, I think it was through the liturgy that I first was able to really transcend the narrowness of our historical moment in so many ways and be able to, to kind of think and dream outside of the, I don't know, narrow strictures that we were stuck in or many still are stuck in and be able to see the broader expanse of Christian history um, and the tradition that we get to be a part of. And I don't think that I would have persevered in the faith. I mean, God obviously could have used any number of other means to keep me there. But in point of fact, what he used was Pope Benedict at really many key moments, especially early on in my formation there. So now I'll be forever grateful. And if by God's grace, um, I am one day blessed to receive holy orders, I will definitely credit Pope Benedict with the inspiration and the, um, yeah, the kind of desire to follow through with that. That's wonderful. Yeah, the, the liturgy was definitely a key thing for me too, as, all, as for all three of you. Um, I had heard about Cardinal Ratzinger, as he then was a lot um, from when I was a child. My Both of my parents admired him very much. And my father had met him uh, when he, that is when my father was a, a student at the Biblicum in Rome um, and had stayed in touch with him after that. Um, but then when I was a teenager, I, I was maybe even more nerdy as a teenager than you, Urban. Um, <laughs> we were living in Gaming in Lower Austria. My father was teaching at a little international theological institute. Um, and I, I, uh, hung out a lot with theology students who were much older than me when I was a teenager. Um, they were all big admirers of Cardinal Ratzinger and we, we were we would uh, the the particular group uh, that I spent most time with was a group of altar servers who would serve at this theological institute at the liturgies. We had a number of very good priests. Don Reto Nai, who was uh, our chaplain at the time, he who celebrated the liturgy with really intense reverence, um, and we the altar boys were trying to, you know, organize ever more solemn liturgies. Uh, and they gave me a, a copy on my birthday, that group of uh, theology students gave me a copy of the spirit of the liturgy. And another of the priests at the ITI at the time was Father John Sayward, who had translated the spirit of the liturgy into English. Um, so that was, I read, I read that book uh, and it really uh, opened up the eyes of my heart even more to the beauty of the liturgy, which I was already experiencing as an altar server and that's and that beauty was really what drew me to desire first uh, to become a priest and then later gave me the desire for the monastic life um, and the, a number of them had stories about meeting 
Cardinal Ratzinger too. My favorite story, the father of one of the, of Timothy Kelly, actually, who's now a professor at the ITI, the International Theological Institute. He had a story about his father going to a lecture of Cardinal Ratzinger's in England. Uh, and after the lecture, he met the Cardinal. And the person who introduced them mentioned that it was his, that is my friend's father's birthday. And Cardinal Ratzinger said, oh, happy birthday, and so on. And the next year, on his birthday, he received a postcard from Rome, and it was Cardinal Ratzinger wishing him a happy birthday. <laughs> it was typical of this sort of very kind and considerate um, attitude to everything. And then he became Pope when I was a student at Thomas Aquinas College in California. And I remember before he became Pope, almost not daring to hope that it would be him, you know, we were hoping it would be one of his students, like Angelo Scola or Christoph Schönborn or Mark Willett, one of these guys who was sort of Ratzingerian. But then when it was actually him, it was just like a tidal wave of joy. We were watching it in this little room in the chaplain's house at TUC. Uh, way too many of us in the room, we were all sitting on the floor because there weren't enough chairs to sit on. And then just uh, burst out into uh, incredible cheering when he I've became Pope. You, I've heard that you blew kisses at the television. Is that true? That's, that's I, the... I, I can't imagine whom you've heard that from, but <laughs> it could well be true. Can neither confirm and nor I, deny. Can neither d- confirm nor deny. Then I went to World Youth Day in Cologne, um, the same year that he was elected. And that was kind of a, an amusing experience. I mean, World Youth Day is... is uh, I always enjoyed World Youth Day, even though it wasn't really sort of liturgically my style. Um, the music was, uh, uh, you know, not Georg Gratzinger conducting Mozart <laughs> for the most part. Uh, but there's there's kind of a comical side to the World Youth Day in Cologne because uh, the last World Youth Day I'd been to was uh, the World Youth Day 2000 in Rome. And even though Pope John Paul II was very old by that time, He's still his his talent his his theatrical and rhetorical talent still came through even in his old age Pope John Paul II he was uh, Pope John Paul II had this tremendous charism this charisma of a, a great speaker a great actor who could really uh, understood a big crowd you know and how to uh, to to rouse their emotions and so on. Whereas Pope Benedict, this very scholarly, gentle guy, was very clumsy about it. So I remember him coming out of the car in World Youth in Cologne and lifting up both of his hands to greet the crowd. And as he lifted up his two arms, uh, it flipped his mozetta up over his face. And so he was sort of <laughs> walking around like blindfolded by his mozetta until you know, <laughs> the MC was able to pull it down so he could see again. That was very typical of him. But then uh, shortly after that, I entered the monastery. Um, and the year after I entered Stift Heiligenkreuz, he came and visited Austria and came and visited our monastery. Um, and that was just such a moving moment when he came into our Abbey Church and I was in the scola, we sang, uh, Tu es pasto ovium, princeps apostolorum. And there he was coming in. And then we sang the uh, the Psalm Dixit Dominus Domino Meo uh, to that antiphon. 
I remember with particular Vim singing the verse, you know, he puts your enemies under you as a footstool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Praying that that would happen with, Saint Benedict, uh, with Pope Benedict. So, All right. let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the hermeneutic of continuity. Um, and I want to talk, since we're on the Josias podcast and the Josias is focused most of all on uh, Catholic social teaching and particularly uh, Catholic teaching on the relation of spiritual and temporal power, um, I want to talk about the hermeneutic, hermeneutic of continuity and reform, as he put it, particularly in that area. Reforming um, continuity, right? Reforming right, continuity, yeah. yeah. In fact, in that speech, that famous speech uh, in which he talked about the hermeneutic of rupture and the hermeneutic of reform and continuity, the example he gave was actually Dignitatis Humanes, teaching on religious liberty. Um, and that, in a way, that... Uh, idea of the continuity of church teaching has been very foundational for um, the way we've thought about these questions. Although I think the the actual solution that it comes to in that talk on the religious liberty example is is slightly different than the solution that I would come to. Am I remembering right that the talk in which he articulated those two for the first time, or at least most famously, was during that address at Foncombo Abbey? Well, the most famous expression, I think, was the address Christmas. to the Roman Curia. Yeah, the, Christmas. The, the Christmas address. Because Foncombo um, was before his papacy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, right. yeah. So he had said similar things at Foncombo. Mm-hmm. That was in, in 2001 when he was at Foncombo, there with respect to the liturgy, above all. Um, but in the address to the Roman Curia, that's the one that he talks about Dignitatis Humanae in. Very good. What, maybe one way of talking about this is um, to think about the, the theology of, of grace and this, particularly the relation of nature and grace Henri Delibach was, of course, one of Ratzinger's dearest friends, uh, and he very much follows Delibach's understanding of that relation of nature and grace. Um, but the, I guess the consequences he draws from that for sort of the relation of the church and the world, to use modern terminology, um, is not necessarily what you would expect of uh, that kind of, the great unease with separation between the realms of nature and grace that he has when he's talking about the theology of grace, you would expect that to cash out into a view of the church and the world uh, that would be more integralist. Um, <laughs> but whereas or even what kind in fact of you get is a collapsing less integralist. Fact. Yeah. Or even a kind of monism. Yeah. It was in the car on the way. I just got back from from going to his funeral with a group of students, um, and in the car on the way back, on the way down, we listened to his autobiography as an audiobook in the car, and on the way back, we listened to a book uh, which in English is called "The Yes of Jesus Christ," 
Um, and I want to just read a little quote from this book, uh, which is very much, I think, um, is very beautiful and, and pulls, I, I wish he would press it further in a way when, he, when it comes to actual application in Catholic social teaching. But this is what he says. Um, he's, he's been talking about uh, acedia and hope and how acedia sort of robs us of hope and how you need a kind of spiritual magnanimity, uh, spiritual greatness of soul to get over this acedia. And then he says this, what seems to be important is that the greatness of soul of the human vocation reaches beyond the individual aspect of human existence and cannot be squashed back into the merely private sphere. A society that turns what is specifically human into something purely private and defines itself in terms of a complete secularity, which moreover inevitably becomes a pseudo-religion and a new all-embracing system that enslaves people, this kind of society will of its nature be sorrowful, a place of despair. It rests on a diminution of human dignity. A society whose public order is consistently determined by agnosticism is not a society that has become free, but a society that has despaired, marked by the sorrow of man who is fleeing from God and in contradiction with himself. A church that did not have the courage to underline the public status of its image of man would no longer be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the city set on a hill. I think that's a brilliant way of expressing a, a very important truth um, that the church has taught throughout all the ages, but which many theologians of his generation wanted to sort of wriggle out of in various ways. And yeah, to I some don't extent, know. Do you not want to read that, Pater, with red and gold pens in hand, ready to... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he says a this similar is... thing. He has, says a similar thing in the spirit of the liturgy, too. I had written this little thing on the liturgy and society for the Josias last yes. year. And I, I quoted him because what he says is so true. But after it, he goes on to say something that seems sort of not to go along with it. He says something about how, uh, you know, human affairs, which are set up or ordered without proper recognition of God lead to a belittling of man. And so he talks about how worship and law and ethics all have to go together. But then he goes on to say something about how, you know, the, the, old, the old way of, of, uh, of ordering society is gone. So it's, uh, it's interesting that he, he, he's very, in a sense, he seems very at peace with, with where the world is, the, the, the sort of liberal order of the modern world. Uh, and yet he's so critical of so many of its foundational principles. Yeah, in Caritas and Veritate, he has a line where he says, I think this is in the conclusion, he says, a humanism which excludes God is an inhuman humanism. So he's interesting in terms of his relation, his understanding of the relationship between um, 
spiritual power, temporal power, and kind of what's possible for those today, um, how far we should be willing to dream um, about the the sort of ideal relationship between them, et cetera. But there's no sense in which he's content with kind of putting God to the side or making matters that pertain to the virtue of religion um, somehow separate from or off limits to our considerations of the political order um, or in the context of Caritas and Veritate, also the economic order um, and kind of international relations and so forth. Yeah. I think, I, I think one thing that um, makes the sort of um, third way between a kind of markedly preconciliar view of church state relations, you know, to put it crudely and um, the current thing, uh, I think, the the sort of third way that Benedict seems to chart um, is harder for those of us in the Anglosphere to make sense of than it would be in the German context because we really don't we really don't have something like Christian democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in one sense, you could say that um, before the 1970s, the best elements in of both major political parties in the United States had um, elements um, that were comparable to the sort of ethos of Christian democracy. But that, but that sense of kind of post-war optimism, the idea that out of the chaos of totalitarianism, we can have this new kind of Christian inflected integral humanism, uh, which I always associate with the the marvelous uh, transcendent moment of the reopening of um, the Bayreuth Festival um, when they chose in this sort of um, to depart from you know the the normal uh, scheduled programming of obviously just you know Wagner to uh, have um, Fudwangler conduct Beethoven's Ninth. That's this sort of, it, it's like, it was like a manifesto. Uh, and that vision, in some ways, you could say it persisted for a much longer time than some of us would have expected. I, I always find it very striking that um, the last time there was a vote on the subject of same-sex marriage uh, as chancellor, Merkel voted no. Um, it seemed like a live possibility in ways that I think it's hard for us to sort of wrap our heads around in the United States. And I think even now, I mean, if, if we're going to uh, move from the speculative to sort of practical questions, I think it's sort of inarguable that on the continent there is there is more of a kind of broad-based commitment to the common good to justice to the you know remuneration of workers uh you look at you know sectoral bargaining the relative strength of trade unions um the standard of living i dare say the um the better food 
you know, uh, <laughs> it's it's much better to it's it's much better to be a member of the lower middle class uh, in most West, Western European countries than it is in the, to be the equivalent in the United States. Uh, so I think that 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 commitment is easier to understand. Um, I, I don't know. Um, yes. Potter, I, yeah, you... I, I think, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think in, I mean, one way in which this shows itself is in the post-war uh, German constitution. Germany, unlike Austria, Austria after World War II returned to the, the uh, constitution of the first Austrian Republic post-World War I constitution, which was relentlessly positivistic. But Germany did not. They did not return to the constitution of the Weimar Republic, which had been a, a positivistic constitution. Um, the sort of the, the trauma of this extreme evil that they had seen made them see, I think, the necessity of uh, rooting their common life in something deeper than merely positive law. And so you have the beginning of the the new German constitution after after World War II. It begins with this very exalted uh, concept of the dignity of the human being and so on. And there's this idea that um, an anti, a sort of Christian, anti-Christian German neo-paganism was not, was no good. And so there was this kind of uh, a desire to go back to Christian roots, um, but in a, in a sort of Ranarian anonymous Christian mode, I guess. Which I mean, I guess this is although Ratzinger criticizes Rahner on the on the anonymous Christian thing. There is a certain amount of overlap in the idea of in what I would say is a kind of a confusion of the orders of grace and nature to a certain extent. That some things that are in fact just the natural um that are just human nature showing itself are then attributed to grace and given a kind of uh, salvific meaning. Although in Ratzinger, again, he's much more cautious than Rahner. So for Ratzinger, it always, you always have to have some contact with salvation history. You have to have some contact with Christ to be saved. Um, whereas in, in Rahner, you know, it, it seems like it's enough to have the transcendental horizon or whatever. Okay, uh, maybe before we end, we can say a little bit about uh, Pope Benedict's funeral, which both Urban and I attended. Um, maybe you want to say some words about your experience of the funeral and so sure. on, Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm living in Rome right now, though I was away from the city um, when Pope Benedict died. I actually found out about the Pope's passing because I was on retreat at Foncombeau in France and showed up to chant sext one day to chant uh, the midday prayer and the guest master had left out along with the various choir books copies of the subvenite for everyone um and we knew okay uh pope benedict has gone to his reward um so at that point i the monastery had uh you know no cell service because the monks don't want it but also because there are very thick stone walls that go back centuries that prevents anything from getting in so i had to go out with uh my computer and my phone to try to set up a hot hotspot and be able to change my flight so i could make it back 
to the city in time for the funeral. So I got back here late the night before and woke up early the next morning, met a couple of priest friends, uh, American diocesan priest friends, and walked over together. Um, and yeah, we got there early before dawn. And I have to say for me, I mean, there's a lot to say about the funeral itself and the kind of rites of the thing. Um, and I think a lot of that has been said plenty elsewhere, probably. But I'll just say that for me, the thing that was most touching and striking was watching the Pope's dear friend and kind of spiritual son of these last years, right? Um, of course, I'm referring to uh, Ganswein. And he was not concelebrating. He was dressed, uh, assisting in coro, in choir, and was seated just to the right, from our perspective, um, of the altar, uh, the closest to what would be the nave. I mean, we're outside in St. Peter's Square, but the closest to us, of anyone on that side of the choir. And before the liturgy began, he went up and kissed the coffin of Pope Benedict and throughout was just visibly moved um, kind of at every point throughout the funeral. And I don't know, for me, I think it was just this sort of experience of sharing in the morning of someone who felt this loss that I felt in a very global way and in a very um, ecclesial way, right? Uh, Pope Benedict was very right. much my father. And I had read him and been formed by him, but he had no idea who I was. Um, and we had never had any kind of personal relationship. But to get to see that channeled and sort of presented in the mode of a very, very personal relationship between someone who was formed by him likewise, but who also was with him day in and day out in these last years was extremely touching um, and poignant and just made me feel all the more acutely the greatness of the man that we had lost, but who pleased God by the prayers of that mass uh, and the many masses said throughout the world for him would be looking over us once more and interceding for us. So overall, I was very grateful to get to be there. Yeah, but I was very grateful too. I, I drove down with a group of students from Heiligenkreuz, uh, and we arrived just in time to, on Wednesday evening, to be able to go into the basilica where everyone was filing past his body as it lay in state uh, in the basilica itself. And that was that was a very moving moment to see him, to see his his crumpled tiny little body there. You know, the it's so striking whenever you see a corpse that the person has departed, but. Um, with him because he's so frail and so small. Uh, it was particularly moving. And there, among the mourners, I was particularly struck by a group of, of uh, Italian policemen who were off duty, but they came to pay their respects to him um, uh, very prayerfully. Uh, and then the next day, the, the funeral itself um, it was surprisingly hopeful to me, and the 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 mood. I was uh, 
contrary to your counsel, Urban, I, I celebrated the funeral uh, for reasons of convenience. I could be in the sector with chairs uh, and so I could be with my abbot who was celebrating as well. That's Very good two of my confers. Yes, but... Uh, <laughs> but it would have been there fun were, to have lots of, us, but... There were a lot of priests there, a lot of young priests, many of whom were probably from this Benedict vocation bump that you were talking about, Father Tomai. Um, and there was just such this, an atmosphere of great gratitude and, and such hopefulness and kind of joy, even though, you know, there were things about the funeral that could have sort of dampened the mood. It, obviously, it wasn't like Pope John Paul II's funeral. Pope John Paul II had been Pope for so long, you know, they had these giant crowds and so on, and this sort of tidal waves of emotion at his funeral. It was very much more subdued, Pope Benedict's funeral, and Pope Francis is obviously kind of in bad health and in a bad mood, and he wasn't, uh, <laughs> his sermon wasn't like Pope Benedict's sermon at, at Pope John Paul II's funeral. But none of that dampened the mood. And, and I saw so many people I knew, you know, there's so many, it was like the, the funeral was sort of a, a giant meeting of the Cardinal Ratzinger fan club. There were <laughs> all these people that I knew were there. Uh, and the, it just, it ended up being kind of a joyful experience. Gainsvine's yeah, um, um, sort of uh, demeanor following the, the death of his um, beloved master reminded me uh, of the wonderful facility with which uh, Germans create uh, compound words that precisely express um, emotions or concepts uh, for which there's no straightforward sort of English word. Uh, and a friend uh-huh. reminded me of uh, Nibelungen Troya. Yes. You know, uh, we would need a paragraph to convey that. Yes, uh, very much. My abbot had an encounter with Archbishop Genswein on Wednesday afternoon. He and, and two of my confers had, they had traveled down to Rome before I did. So I wasn't there when this happened, but when they went into the Basilica, Archbishop Genswein was there and he, uh, he got them into the little section where he could stay. The rest of us were just sort of filing past the beer that uh, Pope Benedict was lying and stayed on, but they were, Genswein got them into the, the area where, he could, where there were kneelers and they could stay a little while. Um, and then my abbot said he, that is Archbishop Genswein went up to Pope Benedict and patted him on the cheek, which uh, brought tears to my abbot's eyes when he did that. It's very beautiful. Any last thoughts before we close? My, my, um, only other thing would be um, having listened to you, Potter, and Father Tavite talk about um, your own vocations and um, urban. Also, um, I think there there is an interesting difference. One of these things that I haven't seen anyone try to flesh out, but I think we haven't got a word for. It. We talk about. Benedict sort of spike, you know, uh, being associated with a spike in vocations. I think there's a, there were similar conversations about vocations associated with John Paul II 
but I think that there's there's a distinct difference I can't quite put my finger on if we were to talk about on the one hand a sort of Johanna and Pauline that's what I don't know yes yes <laughs> what the designation is but um clergy versus um you know I use this word in a different sense a Benedictine uh sort of clergy you know what is it that makes um Benedict priests distinct is it one of these things that in the same sense that there there are no there's no kind of distinct sort of Ratzinger system in his theology, but nevertheless, there are sort of Ratzingerian theologians. Is there something definite uh, or is, or is our sense of what, what Benedict priests are? Is it something more kind of diffuse? I'm just curious what you guys think. Yeah, it's interesting. Even, sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Even just thinking about trying to define what the, what the John Paul, the second generation is like, for me, it seems that that generation was much more attached to John Paul II as a figure, as a person, his holiness, his char- charisma, his, you know, what Pater Edmund was speaking about earlier, his, his dramatics and his, that, that seems to be what so many of the priests in the generation or generations before me uh, rallied around. Whereas, of course, I, I have a very, you know, tender filial love for, for Pope Benedict, but it's not so much for the, the persona as the content, uh, the, the, the reasonableness of his, his teaching, the content of the faith that he, he defended so staunchly at, at the CDF and then as Pope, and, and the uh, focus on the liturgy as, a, as the heart of our life and our, in, our, uh, our worship of God, our logical worship of God at the center of our lives. That seems to me more at the heart of what the, the, the Benedictine generation of priests is, is focused on. Yeah, yes, I would just I add to agree. that by saying that I think the John Paul generation maybe is a little more outward looking and the Benedict generation a little more inward looking. And obviously we need both of those things. So I don't mean to say that, you know, one of those ought to be absolutely preferred to the other. But I think both because of St. John Paul's persona, but also because of the state of the church at that moment, uh, especially in the kind of heyday of his pontificate, there was just a great deal of outward looking energy that had this great kind of missionary zeal to it um, and was very much about how to spread this faith or spread it again. Um, And that's incredible and important. What I think the Benedict generation brings that is a bit different is the realization that we've now had so much of this kind of missionary energy and zeal, but for us, we unfortunately were the children of a generation that had no context in which to raise us um, in this faith. And so as much external energy as there may be, if we don't have anything to invite people into, then the attempt to make converts doesn't go very far. Um, And so I think a lot of the Benedict generation of clergy, but not just of clergy either, this is something that I think is very true uh, among the lay faithful as well, is a focus on building up the church herself um, 
from the parochial level all, all the way on up, um, but attaching ourselves in ways that start very locally with a great deal of attention to detail liturgically, but also in community, in faith formation. Um, and I think that that's something really beautiful. It's kind of the best version, right, of the Benedict option, quote unquote. Uh, and I don't mean to be overly punny about that, but it's this way of saying that we need to take stock of and not neglect the church herself as well. Um, because I think having been raised with so little ecclesiastically, um, it was through Benedict and through what he was able to accomplish, but also to show in himself as something that could be accomplished that we were sort of drawn on to enter into the church or enter more deeply into the church or convert to religious life or receive a priestly vocation and say, we need to care about the structures that make it possible to preserve this and hand it on well and easily in an age that could not be less friendly to it. So I think there's a lot less that's taken for granted among the gen uh, the Benedict generation. Yes, I agree. A kind of symbol of this is the the two Marinis, the Piero Marini, who is a master papal master of ceremonies under Pope John Paul II, and then in the first years of Pope Benedict's pontificate, and then Guido Marini, who took over from him. Piero Marini, he was very into um, the liturgy as um, kind of a, a television spectacle. I mean, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but uh, he—that is something that he put a lot of attention onto, and and he was very interested in inculturation. And in whenever the Pope would go to some different country, Piero Marini would invent some ceremony to add to the liturgy that sort of brought in some element from the local culture or whatever. Um, whereas Guido Marini was much more interested in uh, in liturgical tradition, um, in in trying to incorporate some elements of silence and, and trying to underline the sacrality of what was happening. Uh, yeah. This past year, I've gotten to go twice, I think, to ordinations here in Rome. Oh, actually, I was at Guido Marini's uh, Episcopal consecration first, which was an accident. Someone told me it was a not a publicly advertised thing, but someone told me, hey, if you show up to St. Peter's at this time, there's an Episcopal consecration happening. And I had just moved here. It was my first liturgy in St. Peter's since I'd moved here. And I had no idea who was being consecrated. And I walked in and got the holy card when I sat down in my seat and thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing um, that I'm going to be here for this. Yeah. But then twice since then, at Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, I've been at ordinations that now Bishop Guido Marini did for Dominicans of the Roman province. Um, and it's incredible to to watch him celebrate mass. Of course, those were masses ordinations in the Novus Ordo, um, but both because of that community and uh, because of the ordinance, in fact, um, but also because of him, the amount of solemnity and reverence present in those liturgies was just incredible. And his homily um, for most recently, a friend of mine's diaconal ordination there, I remember, um, very well of him just looking the entire time, just eyes locked on this ordinand uh, and telling him, 
look to Christ, look to Jesus at every moment of this process, look to Christ, look to Jesus. And I just thought, oh, this is also such a, a kind of Pope Benedict um, style message in the midst of this too, that in the midst of orders, yes, I'm sure you will do many great things as a friar preacher, but the point throughout is this contemplative gaze upon your savior who is your God. Um, so yeah, I agree with that, uh, that comparison and think that Guido Marini, um, expresses a lot of the best of what Pope Benedict gave us liturgically. And there are many great American examples of this too. Matthew earlier mentioned Archbishop Alexander Sample, um, who's another man who just shows forth the spirit of Pope Benedict to me liturgically and uh, pastorally. Um, but I look forward to the kind of Benedict bump in vocations. I look forward to the day when many of these men, please God, um, are also princes of the church leading local dioceses and trying to do that in the very simple, serene, saintly spirit with a great deal of liturgical solemnity that Pope Benedict showed forth to all of us. Amen. On that note, thank you very much for coming on the Josiah's podcast. God bless you all. Thank you, Father. God bless. Yeah, thank you all. <laughs>